welcome to another episode of Bookends, the podcast for writers and book lovers. Philippa Moore with you. In this episode, I speak with debut novelist Nicola Doherty, whose book The Out of Office Girl hit our shelves over the summer. Declared a modern-day Roman holiday, The Out of Office Girl is a smart, funny, relatable and totally unputdownable book. In fact, I read the whole thing in just one afternoon. Nicola was born and grew up in Monkstown in Dublin, but she now lives in London, which is where I met up with her for this interview. So, Nicola Doherty, author of The Out of Office Girl, welcome to Bookends. Thank you. Now, this is a novel about a girl who sort of laments that the sort of romance you see in the movies doesn't really happen in real life. Yeah, that's, that's, one, of her, that's one of her trials at the beginning of the book. I mean, I think it's... Um, for me, essentially, it's a, it's a book about a girl who lacks confidence. Um, and it's a story about how she's thrown into a situation where she has to suddenly find her feet and kind of prove herself um, in her work life and also in her romantic life, in her relationships. That's, uh, for me, that's kind of the, the heart of it. But um, as, as regards what actually happens to her, she's a sort of a struggling, downtrodden junior editor at a publisher, you know, trying to get ahead, but kind of doing a lot of the donkey work and not really, not really where she wants to be. And then one day she gets a piece of news, which is that her boss, who she's very frightened of, uh, has to go into hospital and that she, Alice, is now going to be put in her boss's shoes and sent to Italy to work on a film star's autobiography. And this man, Luther Carson is his name, he's someone who she's had a crush on from afar, um, basically since she was 15. And now she's finally going to meet him and actually she's going to get to know him in the... in the sort of closest way possible as she hears his life story. So it seems like a dream come true, but um, as we as we all know, um, fantasies like that don't always uh, work out exactly according to plan, and she gets herself, um, she gets a lot more than she bargained for when she goes to Sicily. I, I think a lot of us can relate to that, where we've all been in perhaps a, a position where we've, we've, been, we've felt a bit undervalued. Definitely, um, yeah. But in Alice's case, it's not just her work life where yeah. she feels a bit... You know, hmm. she's 26, and I think, I think that's kind of an age where you're, sort of, you're, looking for, you're looking for a more serious relationship, but often the guys your age maybe aren't, or maybe you're still making bad choices. You haven't really figured out what it is that you need in someone else to make you happy and she certainly hasn't figured that out so she's sort of caught between this kind of horrible boyfriend who's quite handsome and dashing but just doesn't treat her very well and then she has this crush on this film star who you know she he's gorgeous as well and she thinks well maybe she doesn't think that anything will happen with her and this man because she considers herself to be so sort of beneath him but she's she's still learning a lot about what she needs I think in a relationship so well perhaps um, you might like to tantalise the reason we're not going to give it all away (laughs) but um, Nicholas is going to read um, a little excerpt from the beginning of the out of office girl okay so this is chapter one I'm lying on my bed watching Luther undress I've seen this so many times, but it never fails to mesmerize me. First, the t-shirt slips off, white against his tan skin, leaving his dark brown hair even more messed up than before. The expression in his brown eyes is hard to read. He looks passionate, intense, vulnerable. My phone is ringing. I answer it reluctantly, my eyes still on the screen. Hi, Alice. It's Erica. 
I know it's last minute, but we're meeting some people in the Dove. Want to come? Or are you out somewhere? I hear voices. No, no, I find the remote and press pause. I'd love to, but I'm working. I instantly regret saying this because I know what Eric is going to say. Oh, come on, you're always taking work home. You should be more assertive. Work-life balance. Oh, God, I love my sister, but I can't deal with her tonight. I will. Listen, I'm sorry about tonight, but next time, definitely. You should. You don't want to sit sulking at home, you know, are her parting words. That's where she's wrong. Sit sulking at home is exactly what I want to do right now. That and veg out in front of Luther Carson films, which counts as work, and eat Pringles and drink white wine, and generally avoid thinking about the fact that after two months together, Simon doesn't even care about me enough to break up with me officially. Although I know I shouldn't have, I've saved all my text messages from Simon. It's like a mini history of our eight-week relationship. There's the first one he ever sent. Hi, Alice. Great to meet you last night. Drink next week? Simon X. It reads like a really precious memory of a golden age when he still liked me. They continue nicely for a while. Thanks for a great night. See you V soon. SXX. But over the past few weeks, the X's have started to disappear and the texts become more casual and infrequent, saying things like, running late, sorry, or not sure, we'll let you know next week. It's constructive dismissal, Erica said when I first told her what was happening. He hasn't actually fired you, but he's changed the terms of your employment so that your previous job, the relationship, no longer exists. It's good to have an employment lawyer as a sister, I suppose, but sometimes Erica can be a bit too businesslike. The very last text from Simon says, sorry, can't do Wednesday, we'll call to rearrange. That was over a week ago. At first I tried not to worry about it, reminding myself that he's very busy at work, he's just been promoted, but deep down I knew he was losing interest. Yesterday I swallowed my pride and sent him a quick, friendly text, just to give it one last chance. That was over, I checked my phone, 28 hours ago and he hasn't replied. I still can't quite believe it. How can you dump someone after you've been together for two months, not even via phone or text or email, but via silence? Okay, that's it. I'm going to stop torturing myself by thinking of all the things I might or might not have done wrong with Simon. I settle back on my duvet and pour myself another glass of wine. It was a bit of a last-minute request from my boss, but I'm very happy to watch Fever again. I think it's up there with Footloose and Dirty Dancing, though some would say it's a shameless 90s rip-off of both. We're publishing Luther's autobiography, and Olivia wants me to pick a still from Fever to use in the picture section of the book, which isn't exactly a hardship. I make a note of the time on the LCD, writing L, topless, beside it, and a star. Soon the all-too-brief bedroom scene is over. There's a scene with Jimmy and Donna's family where they make it clear that they hate him. The headmaster from Ferris Bueller's Day Off plays the father. Now Jimmy is trying to persuade Donna to leave her uptight Harvard fiancé and run off to New York with him. They start arguing about it, and then he stops and just asks her to dance with him instead. They don't say anything while they dance, but when the dance is over, she tells him she'll go with him. I love this scene. It sounds crazy, but when I watch it, I don't feel that Luther is acting. I feel that he's living it and means it. He really wants to persuade her to trust him and stay with him, not by arguing with her, but by showing her what they mean to each other. It's so romantic. 
What a pity that life isn't a teen dance movie and real men don't do things like this. Instead, they dump you via the silent treatment. Well, um, Nicola does a wonderful job of setting the scene very early in her book about the sort of character Alice is and also the sort of situation that she's in um, romantically, which I could definitely relate to, Nicola. I mean, with the first few pages, I was like, yep, been there, yeah. bought that T-shirt. But what's yeah. really interesting is this character of um, Luther because he sounds like, you know, Brad Pitt, Keanu Reeves and yeah. Patrick Swayze all rolled <laughs> into one. So he was actually really interesting because what... It, of course ends up happening is that Alice ends up working with the guy um, and it's technically her fantasy come to life. How did you go about creating the character of Luther? That's a really good question. Well, there were sort of two levels to it. I mean, one was that obviously I had to do a lot of research. Um, I haven't ever met a Hollywood film star, so I had to... Yes, I was wondering <laughs> if it had been based on real experience. Unfortunately, no. I mean, I did work on celebrity autobiographies as, a, as an assistant in my previous job as an editor. So I knew the kind of things that Alice and Luther would have to kind of work on together. But I also did a lot of research into the film industry and tried to learn as much as I could about what would be going on in Luther's life, what his past would be like, stuff like his, the films that he'd been in, but also his insecurities, why he was doing the book, what he hoped to get out of it, because that obviously is at the heart of it. The, what happens is that Alice figures she's going to be meeting some fantasy man, but what, what obviously comes to pass instead is that she ends up meeting a real person with all of his own demons and so on. And, and that, that was something I really enjoyed, was working on how she initially meets him and she's so dazzled by him, she almost can't really see him properly for who he is. But then she gets to know him a lot better and um, a little of the gloss wears off. That's all I'll say, I suppose. They get to know each other better. But, uh, but Luther's also controlled by yes. his agent, Sam. <laughs> yes. And that adds a, a real bit of um, yeah. interest into the story. Well, in every romantic comedy like this book, you have your Mr. Wrong and your Mr. Right. And it's, I think it's, I always feel it's a little bit like writing a detective story because you open the book and you have Luther, who's obviously, Alice has had a crush on him for years. And then you have this other guy hovering around in the background. And um, the challenge is to kind of keep the reader guessing as to which one is going to end up as the Mr. Right. Sam is Luther's agent and his job is to, to protect Luther and to basically keep him safe from Alice's questions in the book, which Sam feels are, are just not right for the public image of his client. And Sam is quite a serious character. He's very protective of the people that he works with. But he also has his own kind of career struggles going on and we get to learn a bit more about them as we, as we go on. What I found really, really interesting about the whole, you know, Alice going to Italy to work with Luther on his celebrity autobiography was this concept of ghost writing yeah. in celebrity autobiography. It's it's interesting. It's such a strange relationship. I mean, Alice begins obviously as Luther's editor, but then she ends up, for one reason or another, she ends up writing a lot of the book. And it's a fascinating relationship. And I, I was always interested because I used to deal with a lot of authors and their ghostwriters. It's a very close relationship, but it can also be quite conflicted because often what will happen is the, the, the author or the person whose story it is, the person whose name is on the cover, will tell the ghost things, but then will kind of get anxious about the fact that it's not just a conversation, it's actually going in the book. So there's, there's yeah, there's a lot of challenges as a ghost. I, I, 
I have a lot of respect for ghostwriters and people who work on those. All of the celebrity autobiographies that you read are obviously ghosted. Um, all of them? Not, not one of them almost is actually all. written? Actually, I, I tell a lie, almost all. Um, I worked on Russell Brown's book and he wrote that himself. And he's, he's a very good writer. Yeah. Graham Norton wrote his book himself. But, you know, I mean, Cheryl Cole's just uh, put her book out. I'm sure she worked with a professional writer. It's not just you sit down and chapter one, you're born, and chapter 20, you know, you bring the story up to date. There's, there's enormous amount of skill that goes into writing and um, ghosting a book. And um, if, actually, I would also definitely recommend there are two books that, that I think are really fascinating about the ghosting process. One is called The Ghost by Robert Harris, and it was made into a movie. Um, it's about a man who ghosts a... Is this the one with Pierce Brosnan in it? Yeah, I think so, yes. Pierce Brosnan plays um, a former prime minister. Yes, Tom's and been going on about this. It's a very good <laughs> film. It's worth a watch, but the, the, book but the, is, the book is a brilliant description of what it's actually like to work as a ghost on a book like that. And then another fascinating book is um, by Jenny Erdahl, E-R-D-A-L, and it's called ghosting or ghostwritten she worked for maybe 20 years with this publisher he dictated his letters to her and then in the end she actually wrote two novels for him so she became almost his voice and it's just a fascinating description of yeah what that's like to sort of become someone's someone's mouthpiece almost so it's a very intense relationship and there's plenty of potential for kind of drama and comedy so that was what I wanted to to bring out in my story. What I also like about the out-of-office girl is the comment it makes on celebrity pretty much yeah. as a whole. I mean, there was a really interesting segment. I mean, as obviously we're not going to give too much away, but there's a, a scenario where um, some characters are behaving actually really quite badly and Alice is struggling to sort of understand why they would just be so obnoxious mm. and I think is it Sam who actually says to her that yeah. these people have actually sold themselves to the world and behaving badly is they believe it's kind of their right I think uh, yeah actually I've, I've just got it right here he sort of says Alice is saying how could that star have been have thrown such a tantrum how do people behave so obnoxiously and he says the thing is from her perspective She's given up a lot to do, a lot to do what she does today, and the payoff for her is that she gets everything that she wants. And the people around her give it to her because they know that's the deal, and they're on her payroll. They make money from her. I'm reading from the book here. She's not a private person anymore. She's an industry, and that is that's mm. a really it's a really harsh way to put it, but it's it is actually the it's the reality I think for a lot of mega stars. They kind of they are. You know, if you call around to someone's Beckingham Palace or whatever it is, it's it's like a business as well as a home. And, you know, there are a lot of challenges. I don't want to single out the Beckhams. I don't know anything about their life. But, yeah, there's there's a lot of challenges, I think, when you become a, such a big star. Mm. And as a result, there's a certain level of entitlement. Entitlement. Yeah, entitlement and loss of perspective. Because, you know, if I was being driven around by my agent and my publicist and my handler all day long and, like handed lattes or whatever whenever I wanted one you know I, I would I would lose the plot within days I'm sure I'm sure you would yes <laughs> so that leads on very nicely to my next question is um, maybe you could tell us a bit about the, the process of writing the out of office girl I mean so you were working full-time as an editor well what happened was I worked as an editor 
and I did end up working a little bit on celebrity autobiographies and I thought it would make an interesting idea for a story. Once I left, um, I did a lot of freelancing and I had never really believed that I could write a book. I thought that that was for other people and I thought that it required some kind of special gene or something that you were born with that, you know, or like, like you know, people can, some people can roll their tongues a certain way and some people can. I, I thought it was a bit like that. But one day I just decided as an experiment on the side, why don't I try writing a book just for my own amusement for me that really helped me because from the beginning I didn't well obviously I had expectations and hopes and dreams that's unavoidable but I really tried hard not to attach any too great expectations to it I thought my goal is it's a bit like entering a race and you say to yourself I'm just going to get to the finish line that's it my goal is not to beat the fastest woman runner I can't I'm beginning my goal is to finish this book and I think that's really important if you do start something to finish it to my own satisfaction so that's what I did and it took about a year and a half between various rewrites and coming back to it and um, wanting to abandon it and then just thinking no I'll finish it because I suppose I just felt even if it doesn't get published and I really had maybe having worked in publishing I kind of had a you knew what the deal I had was. a I had a pretty realistic idea of how difficult it is and how much is is subjective and is dependent on the market and is dependent on you know what's what's popular that year or whatever it is um, but I thought to myself whatever happens I'll finish it to my own satisfaction so it's a good way to be really isn't it if possible <laughs> if possible it's obviously as we know it's kind of easier said than done but um but that is one thing that I, I would definitely say to someone who, who, who was contemplating writing a book. I'd say go for it and don't take as a measure of your success whether or not it'll be published. Don't finish chapter one and then think, but will it be published? You know, because the truth is you can't possibly know that. Well, exactly. I mean, and at, at the end of the day, what matters is the story that you're trying to tell. I think so. Or at least have that be your goal initially. And then once you've finished it to the best you can possibly make it, then you can go out and, yeah. I, I read something wonderful by Elizabeth Gilbert the other day, the author of Eat, Pray, mm. Love. She said, write your heart out and let destiny take care of the rest. Wow. So that, that's my motto, really. <laughs> that's a really good way to look at it. I mean, obviously it's... Um, it's something that, that you won't always manage to aspire to, but, but that would be the ideal way if you can. I mean, I think as I was saying to you earlier before our interview, it's, it's so different writing from other creative activities because oh, let's say you're interested in painting and you know you take a painting course and you learn the techniques and as far as you can and then you finish your little work and you can hang it on the wall and people can see it and that's what you've done with it but it's very different with writing I think it's very kind of all or nothing and people feel that if if they start then they must get it published and if not there's no point and obviously that is the the ideal but but there's got to be some joy in the process itself for its own and, sake. and some satisfaction yeah, where in the possible, process. For its yeah. own sake. I mean, what I did, and I don't, you know, obviously everyone's different, but one thing that I did was I, as I wrote it, I sent bits to a friend of mine called Frida who read it as it went along. So almost, I suppose, it was like I was writing a little serial mm. for this friend of mine who was very nice about it and said that she enjoyed it and wanted to read more. And had I not had that, I really wonder if I would have finished it because you do need that external validation or that external at least kind of support and incentive and 
Well, it's important to share your work with other people exactly. because otherwise how would you know, one, exactly. if you're any good and two, if it's... Exactly. The, the whole point is to share your work with other people, to share exactly. the story. yeah. So would, what would you say is the best writing advice you've ever received? I, re- I sought out so much advice. I really did. And, I, and that's, I think that's one really great thing to bear in mind is that there's an awful lot of advice out there if, if you want to seek it out. And I visited the website of every author I admired and I looked out for writing tips. And I gathered a lot of really interesting bits and pieces. One thing that really helped me from the writer Mike Gale, who writes kind of very nice, entertaining books and he said his goal when he wrote his first book is called The Imaginary Girlfriend he said it didn't have to be perfect it didn't even have to make sense (laughs) it just had to have a beginning a middle and an end and be 80,000 words long and I thought (laughs) great I can do that (laughs) I just thought that was such a good practical and kind of achievable way to look at it I think a lot of people come to writing with enormous expectations of themselves. Definitely. And it's, you know, it's so different from other arts because you wouldn't pick up a violin and say, well, why can't I play a violin concerto? You know, it's... The first time I pick up the violin. And it's slightly different because we all use language every day. Lots of us write every day and we think... It should be easy. It should be easy and, and, and it is and it isn't. And there are aspects that can be taught... I don't know. I mean, I do know that it is a craft and there are an awful lot of practical things that you can learn to improve your writing. So it is a huge learning curve. I think that's, that's the one thing that I would say to people. And what are you working on at the moment? Is there a follow-up to the yes. end of office? <laughs> um, yes, I'm working on my second book and that's going to come out, I think, this time next year is when it's, when it's due to come out. And it's a similar kind of story in that it's a romance and there's funny bits. Um, it's a different character. I figured Alice had suffered enough and I'd, <laughs> I'd leave her to enjoy her happy ending. But it's about a girl who goes back in time to revisit some regrets that she has about a relationship. So it takes a scenario if ever you kind of wish that you could go back and do things differently. Um, I suppose it's a little bit like Sliding Doors or one of those stories. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of my favourite movies. I do love that film. It's, it's just something that you can't help wondering, what if? Mm. Um, but it, I think it can be very bad for you to dwell on your past as well. Definitely. So, yeah. Because, I mean, at some point you do just sort of have to have faith that everything happens for a reason. And Otherwise you would go crazy. Otherwise you'd go yeah. insane. <laughs> exactly. Well, I know I certainly Yeah. Would. So did you ever see yourself as a writer of romantic fiction or did you yeah, have other a, aspirations? It's a good question. I suppose, well, I, as I was saying earlier, I never saw myself as a writer full stop. But when I began writing... I didn't even think about it that consciously. I just knew that I wanted to choose a kind of a fun, escapist, feel-good story that would be about relationships and would be about romance and that would hopefully be a bit light-hearted but have a bit of um, truth in there as well. So I read a lot of chiclet, romantic fiction, whatever you want to call it. You know, I love books like The Devil Wears Prada was one that I really enjoyed and I'm a big fan of Marion Keys and... Um, that's the kind of book that I enjoy reading a lot myself. So I suppose it made sense to kind of write something in a similar genre. But I didn't think about it that consciously and, yeah. So write what you would like to read. 
exactly is a, is a good average yeah. perhaps exactly yeah. yeah and now you're on the shelf with these people that yes. must be a very it's, wonderful feeling it's very exciting yeah I was really pleased as well with the cover which um, you can't see in a podcast but I think it's a really I'll put a picture <laughs> so you can see it yeah I think it's a really lovely fresh looking picture so I mean a lot of that if, if we say chiclet, I think there is a kind of a stereotypical look that kind of people expect it to be pink or feature shoes and cakes and <laughs> champagne. And, and this, these, these can all work nicely, but I was happy that they went in a slightly different direction. Well, it definitely gives the impression that she's off on some sort of adventure, yeah. some sort of journey, <laughs> and that's definitely what happens. Yeah. I really like the friendship that Alice develops in the out-of-office girl as well, with the woman in Italy. Marisa. Marisa, <laughs> Marissa, right. Or Marissa, as I was calling her. <laughs> it should probably be Marisa. Yeah. But yeah, So, Marissa. I mean, as, as well as a sort of exploration of some common romantic problems, but also looking at the culture of celebrity, it's also a nice tribute to female friendship definitely, as well, I think. Definitely. I'm glad that appealed to you because I, I really enjoyed the friendship between Alice and Marisa what happens is she's a really glamorous Italian woman who's friendly with Luther and um, she kind of comes and visits the villa with her husband and initially Alice is kind of intimidated by her because she's so elegant in that incredible way that Italian women have and I do not know how they do it but um, as they get to know each other um, Alice finds out that Marissa has her own kind of troubles and has kind of had a bit of a hard time recently but Marissa manages to give I think they each manage to give each other a little bit of their confidence back which is nice mm, definitely. So, I liked the shopping scene the shopping that scene that was great fun to read <laughs> was it fun to write it was loads of fun um, I mean it is a kind of a staple of these kinds of stories that you have a shopping scene but I prefer to see it as a transformation scene mm. because it's the scene where the character who has her her kind of inner beauty but which is which kind of goes unnoticed where her, her outer appearance begins to correspond to to what she's like inside and mm. I think that's a really nice you know I don't see it as a shallow kind of it's a little bit shallow but um for me, it wasn't about dropping a whole load of designer label names. It was about someone managing to kind of to look in the mirror and be happy with themselves, which is which is a good thing, I think. And take pride in themselves. Yeah. No, it was yeah. a very nice piece of symbolism. Uh, do you have a favourite scene in the Out of Office Girl? <laughs> I oh, have. <laughs> I love that question. That's a great question. I do. I have a bit of well, I have a bit of a soft spot for the pool scene which is um, the scene at night, late at night, Alice and her eventual Mr. Wright kind of have a conversation beside the swimming pool late at night. And it's the kind of thing that only happens when you're on holiday in a really hot place and, you know, you go for a swim at night and you can kind of talk freely and it's, it's a romantic scene and they kind of learn a lot about each other and... I enjoy that one. <laughs> oh, well, let's hope that's tantalising enough. What was for your favourite one? My favourite one was where she has the showdown with the <laughs> crappy boyfriend in the yeah. supermarket. I mean, that's every yeah. um, every rejected woman's fantasy. Really, yeah, isn't it? she runs into her, her horrible ex um, when she's out buying sort of treats for herself in the corner shop and she it's it's just that kind of you know when afterwards often after these encounters you wish that you would said xyz but she actually does manage to say it yes. <laughs> i was very proud of alice in that scene very good proud. <laughs> but i think the other thing that i liked about that scene that was that the reason that it went into the story was because 
she's kind of she's feeling a bit defeated and she's about to kind of go home and hide in her room which is kind of her weakness as a character is that she will do that but having had this showdown with this guy it kind of gives her a bit of fire back in her belly and she thinks no I'm not going to sit at home feeling miserable I am going to I've, I, I feel heartbroken I feel miserable but I'm going to put on some clothes and stick on some makeup and get out there and live life and that's a good turning point I think in her story well, Nicola Doherty author of The Out of Office Girl thank you very much for joining me on Bookends today. thank you uh, thank you I really enjoyed and um, I'll be listening to all the future podcasts as well thank you for having me That was Nicola Doherty, author of The Out of Office Girl, which is published by Headline and is out now. You can get all the details of this episode by going to the Bookends website, www.bookendspodcast.wordpress.com, where you'll find author information, links to all their books, and you can also view all of the other episodes of Bookends. Uh, That's all from me today. Join us next week for an exciting interview with Stella Newman, author of the novel Pear Shaped, where we will be talking about everything from books to the search for the perfect chocolate brownie. See you then.